Hi, this is Richard Zing from the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. This morning I'm talking with Ted Listig, distinguished statistician at Medtronic, an adjunct assistant professor of biostatistics at the University of Minnesota. Ted, welcome to you. Thanks, Richard. Good to be here. What initially attracted you to the discipline of statistics? Well, in a certain sense, it was somewhat of a last man standing. I went to a liberal arts undergraduate school, St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. And at various points, I had been a communications major, a French major, medieval studies major. Math had been there the whole time, and it was the only one that ended up staying. And I had the great fortune during my junior year to have a course with Michael Kahn, who had graduated from the University of Washington in statistics. Ended up taking five courses with him, really uh, intrigued by the discipline, and ended up going... Interestingly enough, not to where he had gone, the Department of Statistics, but to the Department of Biostatistics. And part of the idea was that I didn't want my work just to be about optimizing widgets, just some random manufactured item. I really did want the, I was attracted to the idea of my work that would have a lasting benefit upon the human condition. My father's a minister, so the idea of vocation plays strongly to me. And I really like the idea of a career where I can use my quantitative aptitude and yet still manage to have an impact that would be lasting. What's your uh, favorite non-statistics pastime? I prefer uh, endurance sports that do not require any hand-eye coordination. So uh, this is things like uh, cross-country skiing, cycling, mountain biking. But uh, baseball, not my forte. Uh, any interest in Renaissance festivals, given your past education? <laughs> I have gone to Renaissance festivals in the past. Um, and, you know, I've got courses in my background, such as medieval Icelandic sagas. Uh, but it's not something that I pursue regularly anymore. <laughs> Can you describe your current role at Medtronic? So my title is Distinguished Statistician, to which I usually tell people it beats being an extinguished statistician. My role is more of the lead corporate biostatistician. And so much of what I do there is internal consulting on high-level projects, so giving guidance across the company, um, sometimes in cases where there's disagreement within the company, or perhaps just when they want an extra look at something of high impact to the company. I also do a fair bit of external interaction, being the representative of the company for statistical interaction, or perhaps in some cases to lobby or advocate for particular methods or practices which we would like to see furthered by the company. Now, some may not be as familiar with the development of medical devices and diagnostics. Uh, can you summarize some of the statistical and regulatory challenges uh, as compared to drugs or biologics? Well, I've only been with Medtronic for about three and a half years now, so it's been a learning process for me as well. So it's relatively recent, but perhaps not extensive, so my answer will be happy to in that light. So devices came onto the scene from a regulation perspective much more recently than drugs. So the medical device amendments came through in 1976. And one of the interesting things about that is as they came through, there was provision made for the regulation of devices that were already existing. So if you had a device that was on the market in 75, the law comes through in 76, then 
if you have a very similar device coming through in 77, you wouldn't want to have that new device have a completely different set of requirements than something that had already been on the market in 75. So that brings to a very important distinction. There's something called the 510K process with devices. And it rests on the concept of substantial equivalence. So if you can demonstrate that a new product coming out is substantially equivalent to a predicate device, and initially this is one already in the market when the regulations came through, later it was just perhaps being equivalent to something already on the market that might initially have come through in this manner, or perhaps came through in a different process. Anyway, if you can show that you're substantially equivalent, then you have a much lower bar for the additional amount of novel information you need to support that application. Another major difference is persons ordinarily think about the drug approval process as being involved with the four major phases, phase one, trial, two, three, four. And within devices, we don't tend to split it that way. You might have a first demand study, but that could well be followed directly by a pivotal study at which you would generate the evidence needed to secure marketing approval for the device. Oftentimes, much of what might be done more on the phase one side will do in bench testing to say, does the device have those physical characteristics we desire to have? Or can we, in other senses, evaluate in the lab how it works? Now, another aspect as well is uh, we have different classes of devices. We have class one, class two, class three. And class one are low-risk devices that only have to satisfy general controls. Class two are medium-risk uh, medium devices that satisfy general and special controls. And class three are high-risk devices satisfying general controls and for which one must obtain pre-market approval. So for drugs, for a study coming out, you might need to get uh, first an IND approval for the investigation on your drug. For a new device coming out, it would come under the auspices of an IDE, an investigational device exemption. But then if you have to run a trial for that, it would be under a PMA process, uh, which is a different mechanism slightly than what's done for drugs. One other thing I'll touch on briefly, which is somewhat interesting, is that how adverse events are captured is somewhat different for devices than for drugs. In many cases, we tend to be a bit more confident about our ability to classify relatedness in terms of whether or not an adverse event is thought to be related to the device. That also has a slight impact in terms of how one classifies the, uh, the instance reported to device. We have MDRs, medical device reporting or adverse event reporting. And the events, you know, death, serious injury, malfunction, they need to be again reported by manufacturer, user facility, and importers of medical devices. A final thing I'll touch upon is this idea that within drugs, we very rarely believe that there's an impact of the provider. You know, your pharmacist, your physician might prescribe a particular drug regimen to you. The pharmacist might fill it out, potentially making a switch to a generic. But generally speaking, who assigned you the drug is not thought to be an important issue. Within devices, particularly for implantable devices, very often there's a major impact or potential major impact of who your surgeon is that is performing the procedure that puts the device in you. Or for devices that um, are electronic and have programming in it, there can be a major impact in terms of the programming that the your care provider chooses to implement to use on you. 
So those are just a few of the quick high-level topics that are responsible for some of the differences between drugs and devices. Is there a, a concept uh, similar to generics where uh, a device manufacturer or some other manufacturer can go on the market and try to market a similar device to what's already on the market? Probably the closest thing would be that 510K process I mentioned earlier, if you could demonstrate that a new product was substantially equivalent to something that was out there. But it's interesting in that the development of products seems less shielded by patent issues, such as happens with drugs, and more sh shielded by the rate of technology. So it can simply be that you choose to update a product or have a slight improvement through a series of manufacturing iterations. This is tied to something I think I'll touch on a little bit later, which is that because many devices are created through a series of relatively small iteration steps forward from previous devices, there's a bit more of a call for the application of Bayesian approaches because the difference between one device and another separate device can be as little as just a different size of diameter uh, to variations in perhaps the metal being used uh, to variations in uh, the target population. Sometimes those have a, a bigger effect that we don't anticipate, the case being of hip implants. You may have heard of the difference between metal, metal hips, metal and ceramic hips, and so on. And there, something that might not have thought to have been such a big impact did end up having one. But, um, yeah, there's a variety of ways in which those, those can differ. The 2014 saw the uh, 175th anniversary of the ASA, but it also saw the formation of the ASA section on medical devices and diagnostics. Can you give us a brief history on how this section came about to serve the needs of this group of statisticians? So, again, my, my view of this is a little bit limited due to my relatively brief tenure within the area. But I would like to recognize, in particular, Greg Campbell, from the, the, who is the head of the Division of Biostatistics in the Office of Surveillance and Biometrics at the Center for Devices and Radiologic Health. So Greg really was responsible for championing the idea of devices and diagnostics as something that was unique and had particular needs relative to drugs. There's an often stated phrase that devices are not drugs. And we had an interest group, the statistical interest group in medical devices and diagnostics for a number of years before we turned to applying for and becoming a section. It was just this last year, as you mentioned, that we did become a full-fledged section. But in general, the idea of a section is that it provides a mechanism for persons of similar interests to work more closely together and to advance the particular issues that are interest, of interest to them in the areas that they work in. So now we'll, uh, for instance, we'll be having some of our own invited sessions and we'll, it gives us a bit more visibility in terms of working with other persons within the ASA and in some of the sister organizations as well. Are there any plans to develop uh, educational opportunities uh, similar to what the biopharmaceutical section has offered? So, for instance, within JSM, we hope to be able to start putting forward courses for the continuing education issue within JSM. And we do have some other conferences that primarily draw the device and diagnostic crowd. There's something referred to as the Advomed Statistics FDA statistics workshop that happens in April every year. We'll have our initial day will be primarily sponsored by the devices and diagnostics section of the ASA, 
the next two days more organized by Advomed. We'll have a short course on that first day. We do also um, try to participate very much in this particular meeting where we're at right now, the FDA ASA biopharmaceutical section meeting. One of the things that we have tried to stress with the creation of this new section is that we don't wish to split from the biopharm section so much as we're trying to create a complementary action for our members. And so I'm, I'm very much encouraging, and am myself, a member of both sections. So there are, we'll sponsor various courses that any other section would sponsor. But we're also exploring things such as putting together an introductory course that might happen in the beginning of JSM that would introduce people to some of the issues related specifically to devices and diagnostics. And we, too, hope to take advantage of the nice mechanisms that have been put in place with respect to webinars and use that as a tool to uh, further the education prospects. One of the reasons this is important is I'll get the exact figure wrong, but I believe the median size of a device company is on the order of 30 persons. So if you think about that, that half of the companies out there have less than 30 people involved, you're not going to have three statisticians at every company. So many of the companies out there might have, even if they have a statistician, which can be fairly rare, might well have a statistician that's not overly familiar with the area or might have to engage a CRO that itself would perhaps have limited exposure to the issues of devices and diagnostics. So I think for us, perhaps even more than some other sections, it's going to be key to take advantage and leverage the opportunities that having an education process provides. You're the program chair of this section this year. Uh, what sort of feedback or, or materials you hope to gain from people within the section to develop this curriculum? So I think one of the major ideas is this concept of, is there a body of introductory knowledge that would be helpful for persons moving into the field? We, at the same time, are very interested in the latest and greatest and the technical developments that happen more on the bleeding edge of things. And that's a lot of fun, and I enjoy doing that. But I think at the same time as having the sort of latest and greatest developments, we need to be very aware of what is it that persons moving into the field need to have. So, you know, it's easier to focus just on the established processes. And as program chair, for instance, you're trying to round up uh, persons to have a cohesive session that they can have in JSM to put together perhaps something for ENAR, to have something for, as I mentioned earlier, the AdMed statistics meeting, or for this, the ASA Biofarm FDA joint meeting. So it, I think by having more of a structured process that you get from being a section and not just riding along with the Biofarm, it does allow us to focus a bit more our conversation, get a better sense in terms of what are interesting topics and have persons uh, sort of have similar themes that we can rotate throughout the year. You get a bit more exposure. It's a little bit easier to uh, find out who it is that's interested and active in presenting and leverage it that way. Are there any trends in device or de diagnostic development that you foresee in the near future? So there's a couple things coming up that I think might play out particularly important in the device and diagnostic stage without necessarily being limited to the device and diagnostic stage. So one of those aspects just has to do with how much of our evidence going forward is generated 
from an observational study framework versus from a more controlled randomized experiment framework. Within devices, it can be very challenging to find patients and physicians that are in a sufficient state of equipoise where they would be willing to participate in a study where they would be randomized to do two different treatments. And this is because many times as the therapies evolved, we do have substantial steps in improvement of therapies. One of the ones that's come out quite recently is the introduction of the transcatheter therapy for having the artificial heart valves come out. Previously, this was a fairly invasive surgery, and now you're able to use primarily a catheter approach to go through. And this also highlights the issue that for some of our therapies, it is exceedingly difficult um, to the point of perhaps not even being ethical to have a blind in place or masking within devices, there's a lot of issues with ophthalmology, so sometimes we try to talk about masking more particularly than blinding, which is yeah, its own little wrinkle on things. Um, though, interesting enough, the, the legislation that exists specifically talks about blinding, so even though we think that masking might be more appropriate, if you want to tie back to the legislation, sometimes you do still have to use the blinding nomenclature. But at any rate, the extent to which you would use observational data to support communications. And part of the way which this has come is to the extent that you might, in particular, expand indications for a device that was approved through a more traditional framework. It's not necessarily clear that it would be appropriate or able to use an observational framework for a novel device and, and get the initial approval that way. I think the indication expansion perhaps offers more appropriate setting to get that done. The second thing where I think you might see a bit more uh, refinement on the device and diagnostic side has to do with reimbursement. I think we're moving away from the time when getting approval to sell your device, your therapy, was the major and perhaps only hurdle of interest for companies, for sponsors. Now it's to the point where you need not only to have the regulatory backing, the ability to sell your therapy, but to have a sufficient argument with payers for how you're going to get reimbursed for your therapy. You know, many times in drugs diagnostics, this is something that's used once. It's not a drug that you would take multiple times a daily, that each particular dose is, in fact, a relatively low cost, though summed up over time it's higher. So when you have this single high-cost item, it does have a bit higher level of scrutiny from payers in terms of justifying the amount that you're paying for it. So I think because of perhaps the billing process, issues with reimbursement are going to come to the fore a bit quicker in the device and diagnostic phase space relative to the drug space. Well, how can people get involved in the section uh, as it's growing and developing? Well, we do try to host and take advantage of town hall settings in a variety of forms. So we had a diagnostic town hall that happened just yesterday afternoon. And at JSM, we'll have various town hall meetings. We Now that we're a section, you can find a particular website for us if you go within amstat.org and search down, look for our section. Feel free to contact myself or any of the other section officers directly if you want to find out more or find out ways in which you might volunteer or be active. But, you know, in many ways, we are simply yet another section within the ASA that is comprised of statisticians of similar interest trying to find out how to work together for the best possible way. So we're not any different from the others in that way. It's just we're a bit newer and at this point a little bit smaller, but we would welcome additional involvement. 
Thanks very much for your time today, Ted. Thanks, Richard. This is great.